Welcome to Talking Buildings. Broadcasting from the world-famous Bondi Beach. Bondi Radio. Welcome to Talking Buildings, focusing on the art, the science and practice of building services within the built environment. I'm Paul Angus, Sibsi ANZ Chair. I'm joined by the ever-smiling co-host Sharon Pistonji, Sibsi ANZ Business Development Manager. How are you, Sharon? Hi, Paul. I'm great, thank you. And we're both really excited to be joined by our first broadcast with a very special guest, Frankie Muscovich. Isn't it great, Sharon, to be smashing it in our first broadcast with such a fantastic ambassador for the industry? Prior to Frankie's role as policy manager, sustainability and regulatory affairs at Property Council Australia, she's also previously worked at the Green Building Council of Australia and ACOM. I was so impressed to learn that Frankie graduated from the University of New South Wales with a first-class honours in aerospace engineering, specialising in aerodynamics and computational fluid dynamics. It's such a fantastic achievement, but it's only the beginning, Sharon. At the Office of Environment and Heritage, she also worked to drive the uptake of energy efficiency and renewable energy in the commercial sector, including launching the New South Wales Office of Environment and Heritage online guides to financing solar PV for businesses and households. She was also involved in managing the energy department of the Green Building Council of Australia. Plus, Frankie volunteered and kicked some remarkable goals with Engineers Without Borders in India, which we'll hear about a little bit later. Welcome to our first ever broadcast, Frankie. Well, thanks guys for having me. It's uh, great to be here. It's a great view of the beach here as well. (laughs) It's fantastic. Mm. All right, let's get straight into it. So we just touched very briefly on your career path. And with such a fantastic career episode to date, could you please share with us some of your unique opportunities and experiences that led you to having such a successful career? Thanks. I um, you know, I was reflecting on this on the way over here, and I think it's fair to say my career path's been influenced as much by personal experiences as professional ones early on. So when I graduated from UNSW I was really keen to go and see the world so I started working at ACOM um, you know doing a CFD analysis for building design and, and you know that sort of was really great from a technical point of view but then I took off for a year and a half and I traveled around around the world with my brother okay and you know we spent six months in South America we crossed the US on buses I went to the Middle East with um, my best friend and we spent three months in India on the way back and like those experiences made me want to focus on environmental sustainability in a career so uh-huh. so when I got back and I and I came straight back to AUCOM as well because apart from helping me like pay off my credit card bills <laughs> um, um, it was a really exciting time to be working in in the industry you know with an environmental focus in Sydney it was around the time that Jan Gell had you know, come in from Denmark and he was doing his assessment of, you know, Sydney's livability and walkability and coming up with his ideas for the future of the city. And I just decided I wanted to have a strategic role in that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think from that point, that's what shaped my decisions going forward. And I guess if I look at the sort of roles I've had since then, uh, I've taken every move with a view to having more of a strategic impact on you know 
the way we design buildings, the way the policy is designed. And it's a real shame, but there are so, I think there are so few engineers that, that try to bridge that gap from, from being technical experts to helping shape policy. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a lot of the reason why I'm really keen to be involved with SIBSI. Okay, fantastic. It's also clear that you've worked very hard and are, are required mm-hmm. to travel quite extensively with your role within the company. Um, so where's your discipline and dedication coming from? And, and when, you're exact, when you're exhausted and away from the family, have you got some sort of set ritual that you sort of go through? Yeah, when I look at my peer group across industry as well, I see a lot of really dedicated, passionate individuals. Like everyone just believes so strongly in the work that they do. And I... Um, yeah, I think that that um, really sort of plays into why they're willing to, you know, sacrifice a little bit of that time um, away from, you know, away from family and traveling and things mm-hmm. like that. So, you know, I wouldn't put myself as any sort of anything special in that category. I think there are a lot of people um, out there who are doing amazing work in this space. And I think we all kind of feel at the moment in particular, there's an incredible amount of momentum that we want to seize on. And I think everyone's really upping their efforts, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, the, the national debate about emissions reduction and climate policy going forward. You're now seeing for the first time a really strong consensus in the business community. So there's just this feeling that there's this momentum that's not going to be stopped and we want to capitalise on the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess coming back to the travel and and all of that, you know, I need a coffee the first thing, (laughs) um, you know, in the morning. (laughs) Um, I'll try to go to gym in the morning. It helps me feel awake, um, exercise. And then the weekends, getting out of the city. I love bushwalking and so I've been trying to do a bit more of that. I find it sort of grounding and helps me kind of remove my mind from all of the you know knowledge that you and you know sorry information that you're just constantly you know being um exposed to through Mm -hmm. the week it's important to have that uh, quiet time away so yeah I guess that that's a couple of things I do to try to cope with it yeah awesome thank you um a lot of people are looking to tap into their full potential and they're still looking for the right circumstance or discipline and what would you suggest young engineers start with Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. I think, you know, when I started out um, as a young engineer, I was, it became really obvious that I guess my interests were a little bit broader than just the technical work that I wanted to do. So yeah. I found joining like an organisation like Engineers Without Borders that was trying to take a bit more of a holistic view of what it means to be an engineer and mm-hmm. the contribution that you can make, um, not just, you know, through the everyday of your job, but, you know, as a volunteer or, you know, I used to go along to city talks to find out, you know, how the work that I was doing on specific projects was, you know, impacting on like the broader shaping of our cities. So yeah. I think, you know, follow your interests and, and your passions um, as a starting point. I think don't limit yourself to, to just sort of focusing on the everyday of what you're doing. Um, awesome. So Frankie, it's clear from your work with Engineers Without Borders that you feel passionately about giving back to young engineers, um, young engineer professionals. Um, so how has having a mentor helped you? Yeah, I... Um, I think I I constantly kind of 
question myself. So I find um, one of the things um, is that I'm really indecisive sometimes. And in the early stages of my career, I often kind of think, oh, is that the right move to make? I was, I was really hesitant and through kind of, you know, getting involved in those other initiatives, whether it was Engineers Without Border, I met, I, I met a lot of really strong uh, women in particular, but, but also just really driven individuals that were sort of saying, don't doubt yourself. Like, you know, if you think you can't do that, I'm, you know, those people are sort of living proof that you can. You know, I think um, I felt like at the time I came through um, engineering as a graduate and went into ACOM, there was an expectation you were going to be pigeonholed as a, you know, as a, as an expert in something very specific. Yeah. Um, and and I, I didn't want that. And so I met um, a mentor a couple of years ago. Um, she's fantastic. She's um, Beck Dawson, who's now the chief resilience officer at the city of Sydney. She's uh, doing really amazing things. I think um, I look up to someone like her is really authentic. She's been able to take on positions um you know where she's making meaningful change she's also being true to her principles so yeah. i i find that incredibly inspiring so i'm i'm always looking to people like her for advice and so do you still benefit from a mentoring relationship at this point in your career absolutely I'm, you know i i know people who are a lot older than me that also continue to to speak with mentors and i think the nature of um, mentors you have um, as you as you kind of progress in your career can can be different. Yeah. So recently, you know, I, my roles kind of branched out into doing a little bit more public speaking in media and trying to to look at how you can work with those people who have a platform to tell the good news stories. Um, you know, and that that wasn't something that I'd had experience with before either. Uh, the same way, I'm also learning how to you know, cultivate relationships with people who advise ministers on things. There's there's a bit of an art to that too. And so um, I'm looking for people who have had a lot of experience in that. Um, so so I, I get different things from different people. And I, and I think that's also um, really important to highlight. You, you don't just have to have one mentor. Um, yeah. you know, I think you can look at different people uh, for different things that you admire and take, take those things on board. That's a really interesting point. Thank you. Um, so with your work with Property Council of Australia, do you think that diversity and inclusion are crucial to the su success? Absolutely. Um, this is something I feel particularly passionate about, particularly as a, as a, you know, a woman engineer. Yeah. Um, having gone through university, I think I was one of like less than 10% women in my course. And, and I don't see that as having changed substantially over the yeah. last 10 to 15 years, which is a real shame. I think it's great to see these, um, you know, a push for, for women in STEM and women in STEAM and, and really trying to profile um, the work of, um, you know, women in, as engineering professionals. Um, but what I find, you know, particularly in policy discussions or, you know, at levels where those kind of um, decision makers are all like let's say very similar so if you have like a room full of um, men or, or whatever who are talking about 
um, a problem and they're all informed by very similar experience. Mm -hmm. The kinds of solutions you're going to get are not going to be as diverse, um, you know, as if you have, you know, um, a range of views around the table. I'm not just talking about men and women. I'm talking about different cultural backgrounds. The fact that we need to, you know, include our First Nations people more prominently in these, um, you know, in these kinds of discussions. I think the more robust a discussion you can have and the more different viewpoints you bring to the table, um, the the evidence is there, you know, the the kinds of results you get are are far better. That's a really good point. Um, It's sort of in your opinion, how do you think we can drive meaningful conversations about diversity equity, power and privilege? Yeah, that's a, well, that's, that's, that's <laughs> a sort of question that we're all kind of grappling with. I mean, at Property Council, we've taken, um, you know, a very strong position in that we want to see more representation um, from women in our committees, for example. So I, uh, I run a number of national committees and we set, um, we set targets for, you know, we wanted um, at least 40% women, 40% men, and then there's, you know, 20% that can be distre- discretionary, but we're working towards that 50-50 target. Yeah. I think um, it's, it's crazy that you can have, you know, forums that um, don't represent the, the general population or the nature of the workforce. So, you know, I think... Um, I don't have a problem with mandating those kind of targets. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of really interesting discussion around, you know, promotion um, via merit and all of that. Mm-hmm. But in all of that, you do need to have an honest conversation about unconscious bias and the, the fact that, you know, you do, um, you know, if you're a decision maker, you, are, you can be automatically drawn to people who are like yourself. And so it's important to have those honest conversations. Yeah. and. I'm actually really impressed with the work that Property Council has done in in our industry. So they're, they're working with the top CEOs to try to create that culture change. So I think yeah. like at the very start, it's about having an honest conversation, um, you know, about the things that you're afraid of, about the things that haven't worked yeah. um, and, and providing that kind of space for sharing information. Like it's okay, you're not the only one that's struggling with this. Um, but, you know, I think at the at a very start, you've got to start saying we want to have 50% representation from women or, you know, whatever yeah. it is um, in these key forums. And, you know, I, I think with those kind of ambitious targets, it does tend to start generating conversation and drive the culture change. Do you think, like, in this industry, this is something that the next generation is also going to be grappling with? Or do you, do you think we're going to have had it sorted out by, by then? Well, I, th- I think there's, yeah, that there will still be um, plenty of work, I think, for the next generation. I mean, I'm optimistic, but at the same time, um, you know, I mentioned before, there are still only, you know, 10% of women, say, doing engineering degrees. So it yep. comes down to the pipeline as well. Where are your future leaders coming from? I, I think we need to start, and, and this will be, you know, once we've kind of addressed the status quo and the people who are, you know, representing our industries currently, we need to start looking further back, um, you know, right right the way back to kids in school and promoting, you know, the diversity of career options for yeah. everyone. And, you know, true diversity, you know, we're not just talking about gender balance, we're talking about cultural diversity, representation of our First Nations people, 
um, those those aren't easy challenges to grapple with. So yeah. I think we're gonna have this on the books for a while. Um, but I do see some you know really encouraging um, kinds of programs. I know Engineers Without Borders has done a lot of really great work um, going and doing you know sort of like training um, and highlighting like how cool engineering is um, you know as a as a profession to young girls. And, and our Indigenous people in, in regional Australia. Wow. So I'm really excited to see things like that kicking off and, um, and I'm sure the results will start to flow through. Okay, brilliant. Awesome, some great insights there. Um, what, are the, uh, what are a few things that you don't l- currently like about yourself or, or early in your career that you're, you're working on to improve? Yeah, well, you know, this kind of a situation here, sitting in front of a microphone, um, doesn't, let's say it doesn't come naturally to me, and I'm constantly working on that, because I, I can see the value, um, you know, I was saying to you before, we need to get better about telling the good news stories, you know, about course, all the, yeah. the amazing work that's been done in design of new buildings, targets mm-hmm. for net zero emissions, and um, we're not that good at trumpeting it, so I'm, I'm putting myself out of my comfort <laughs> zone here so I can talk about um, these things. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a, a media person at all, um, but I'm, I'm working on that in public speaking. But the other thing I really struggle with and, and I've always struggled with is that willingness to put myself outside of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I think... Um, you know, from very early on, I was very comfortable in my sort of niche field of expertise and, and I didn't like putting myself up for projects that required me to look at different things. And so, um, and I found every time I've been forced to do that, you know, I've learned a lot and it's been great, but I still struggle with that. And and I also kind of struggle with um, not being across the detail of everything. Mm-hmm. I am a details person and... <laughs> I'm used to kind of having the time to read 200-page reports and understand every bit of nuance. And once you kind of get to a certain level, um, you need to kind of trust others to handle that and, you know, work with those advisors with you. You can't maintain control of everything all the time. And, yeah, so I guess I think I'm a bit of a control freak, but I'm working (laughs) on it. (laughs) Brilliant. So how often do you change your mind? (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're grateful for you for pushing through those barriers to be with us here today. Thank you. Okay, over to Sharon for the Rapid Roundup. It's time for Rapid Roundup. Bondi Radio. Right, so this is just a little bit of fun. Um, I'm going to fire some questions at you. Oh, God. And you can just shout out the first thing that comes to mind. All right, so here we go. Frankie, what makes you laugh and how important is a good sense of humor? Everything makes me laugh. I'm still an engineer (laughs) at heart, so I've got like a really, how shall I say, at times juvenile sense of humor. (laughs) At the moment, I think Sophie Monk as the bachelorette is giving me um, a lot to laugh about, uh, which is good fun, but I also like... um, watching late night uh, TV hosts like um, yep. from the States, like Stephen Colbert and all of that. Satire is um, my favorite sort of <laughs> comedy of choice. Brilliant. And if you could eat only one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? I saw this question. I was like, that is the hardest question. 
to make me yeah, to make an Italian ask. <laughs> I was thinking about that because when I grew up, prosciutto was like a food group in its own right for me. So it's probably got to be salmon, though. You can do so salmon? many things with it. Salmon's good. Brilliant. And what is your favourite um, type of music? Oh, Canadian sort of indie rock. Yeah, so bands like uh, Broken Social Scene, um, the singer Feist is another favourite, and uh, the American band The National are my, are my favourite bands. Fantastic. And if Frankie Muscovich were, walks into a bar, what does she order? A rye old-fashioned. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Brilliant. And when you think of success, who do you immediately first think of? Uh, I think of mentors, yeah. So um, Beck Dawson is someone I look up to a lot. Um, probably not, not the obvious people, so I wouldn't look at um, celebrities or politicians and think success. Um, I look up to a lot of people in my family, I think, who yeah. have sort of tried, tried to sort of stay their authentic self and, uh, you know, success for them doesn't doesn't always look like a high-powered career or something like that. Yeah. It's about spending time with family and just getting that fulfilment from the things that are important. Yeah, that's, that's great. And um, so what was the most challenging thing about your childhood? I'm happy to say I had a, a very <laughs> stable childhood. Um, more, more recently, my dad um, passed away from cancer and that was pretty difficult to deal with. Um, but we are a close family and, you know, yeah. we sort of worked through that as best we could. Okay. And if you had time to take up a new skill, what would it be? I did study aerospace and I always did want to fly a plane. We did um, flight training and stuff when we were doing our degree and that was wicked fun. So if I had the time and the money to do that, I'd, I'd want to be a pilot. That'd be cool. Cool. Yeah. And if the internet stopped working, who would be the first person you'd call to answer your question? It'd be a toss-up between my brother and my boyfriend because their brains are full <laughs> of really random information. I don't know how they came across <laughs> it, but I'm pretty sure between the two of them, uh, they could answer any question I'd have. Google sorted. And um, where is the most beautiful place you have ever been? Oh, that's a tough one. Just one. Um, can I say more than one? No, just one. <laughs> <laughs> you can. <laughs> Hard line here. Um, <laughs> a couple of places come to mind. Um, the desert in Jordan, in Wadi Rum, is really beautiful. Yeah. Um, I spent a bit of time in Alaska um, hiking out in um, McCarthy, which is amazing. And uh, the first time I ever saw a glacier um, was when I was hiking with my brother and we saw the Grey Glacier on the, the circuit track at um, Torres del Pane. And that sort of sticks out in my memory. It's just like something you just never forget. Wow. So like extremes completely. Yeah. <laughs> mountains. Mountains are good. Yeah. <laughs> So if you could offer your younger self some advice, what would that be? Just be yourself. I think there's that, I'm going to screw it up um, if I try <laughs> to paraphrase it. There's this saying about, you know, there's no point trying to be someone else. Everyone else is taken. And so <laughs> I just think, um, you know, play to your strengths and don't be afraid to be ambitious. Yeah. Is what I would tell my younger self that's great advice mm. <laughs> now are you an early riser or a night owl 
I'm a grudging early riser. <laughs> I used to be more of a night owl, but I feel like uh, I have an inner 80 year old. Um, so I'm <laughs> early riser now. Wonderful. And who is the most famous person you have ever met? I was trying to think about this before. <laughs> when I was um, doing my uni degree, I worked in a cafe at the airport and it was the cafe with the only decent coffee going around. So you'd get celebrities and politicians come up to you all the time. And so I met a fair few of those sorts of people. But the person or the people that always stick out were like the Gallagher brothers from Oasis. <laughs> they rocked up and I was so starstruck because um, I was a massive Oasis fan back back then. Um, and they, I remember they ordered like large flat whites and I felt like that was really weird. And I don't know why <laughs> I was surprised by that, but I was. I'm pretty sure I got them to like sign their receipt or something. <laughs> 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 oh, well, you would, wouldn't you? Um, so which celebrity would play you in the movie of your life? <laughs> we were talking about that before <laughs> we started filming and... Uh, I, I think of, you know, the girl crushes I have in terms of, like, actresses. And, um, and a friend of mine once told me, and, uh, you know, I'm just going <laughs> to take it because she said it, um, that I reminded her of a younger Helen Mirren. So I'm just going to say <laughs> Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren it yeah. is. And whose advice do you always listen to? Uh, I always listen to my dad, um, you know, <laughs> so I think... Uh, He's someone I uh, look up to a lot, so I always listen to what he has to say. doesn't mean I follow his <laughs> advice, but I would listen to it. Oh, brilliant. Well, mm. you survived that round. Thank you very much. And yeah. it was good getting to know you a little bit better. Thanks. And I think now we will move on to some more serious questions. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Buildings. Broadcasting from the world-famous Bondi Beach. Bondi Radio. Okay, Frankie, that was really, really, uh, really interesting. Thanks for that. Um, so, getting back down to serious business, as the policy manager at the Property Council of Australia, you will have an opportunity to influence the attitudes of multiple organisations. How do you go about doing that? Well, that's one of the reasons I took the job, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, I mentioned before there's a lot of momentum around, you know, increased ambition for, you know, emissions reduction over time. Yeah broad sort of sustainability strategy. I think this role, as you said, sort of exposes us to a, a lot of other organisations. So well, what I've done in the last 18 months of um, being in the role was to really try to establish some productive dialogues with, with my equivalents, you know, at across different organisations. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's an issue that's common to any industry or company. You know, we're so caught up with what we're doing. You can be operating unintentionally in silos. Yeah. And um, mm. what I've found in, you know, working with policymakers and government is that when you can present a broad consensus from industry, so you can go to them and say, well, you know, we've spoken to X organisation and Y organisation and we're all on the same page. Mm-hmm. And we all want to see, you know, X, Y, and Z happen. Um, so I think the power of building consensus um, has, you know, really proven itself um, to yeah. be, you know, productive. Um, I want to kind of dwell for a little bit on um, 
the work that we've done with the Australian Sustainable Built Environment Council. Yeah. We, um, along with 26 other industry bodies, um, worked on the publication of a policy roadmap for net zero emissions buildings by 2050. And, mm-hmm. you know, the response from policymakers on that report has been really phenomenal. So it's just, it's very powerful to to go to government with a blueprint of, you know, and it was 52-odd policy recommendations and say this is backed by pretty much every industry, you know, body um, mm. in the built environment. We want to be progressive. We want to see this change happen. So mm-hmm. I think initiatives like that more yeah. and more um, is what I want to focus on. Yeah. So what do you think is going to be the hardest item to change? Yeah, there's... um. Yeah, you know, I think it's probably not a surprise to anyone, but I, I think, you know, the commercial building industry is a lot more consolidated yeah. than the residential one. Mm-hmm. So, so I, when I think about, you know, more ambition for sustainable buildings, I think we've we've done a lot of the work already in helping to drive that ambition in commercial buildings you also have a tenant market you know with large organizations that have their own corporate social responsibility and sustainability agendas so they are looking for space to occupy Mm -hmm. that meets their expectations i think we face a real challenge in you know, building the demand for sustainable housing. So what does that even mean to your everyday punter on the street Uh when, you know, most people's kind of decisions on, you know, whether they buy a house, they're they're based more on things of amenity. So like car spaces and granite bench tops and all that sort of thing. But, you know, with cost of electricity rising, you know, I think the... I think the the efficiency with which a home can run is is going to play more of a factor. So, mm-hmm. so I think the residential building industry is going to be the biggest challenge in terms of building support for, you know, um, higher minimum standards, and you know, some of that will require a change in building practice. Yeah. But at the same time, generating the demand for that kind of housing as well, I th- think that's a huge challenge. Yeah. So if you could sprinkle some magic fairy dust, mm. what would be something that you could change overnight? Oh, well, so I was talking about residential more broadly. Mm-hmm. I think um, apartment buildings are really overlooked in yeah. this space in terms of the regulatory environment. Yeah. So I don't want to get too nerdy, but just, just for <laughs> a second, I will. That's <laughs> um, all right. Um, when you look at the compliance path for class two or apartment buildings in the national construction code they kind of fall in between commercial and standalone houses um you know apartment buildings are are much more akin you know particularly high-rise ones to a commercial building in the way they operate Mm -hmm. to a degree you'll have centralized services and things like that yeah but you know to achieve compliance with the National Construction Code, you have to do 600 NATAS, you know, certificates. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'd really like to see um, the approach, like a, a, a dedicated approach for apartment buildings. We're going to see a lot more of that style of housing developed over the next couple of decades. Uh-huh. And I think, you you know, you risk a massive opportunity by continuing with the status quo. So, And I, and I know a lot of um, other parts of industry agree with me on this yeah. um so i think you know if um if i could sprinkle some fairy dust tomorrow i think i'd, I'd have a 
a JV3, you know, verification style method um, ready to go for apartment buildings. And yeah. and I think that it um, that'd present a huge shift in the way those buildings are designed and constructed. Awesome. Brilliant. Um, you were talking about residential before, but where do you see the future of cities developing? I mean, do you think that uh, city-based commercial office buildings will still have a role to play in the future for 15 to 20 years down the, the line? I think they will absolutely, but I think you'll start to see, and, and you're seeing it already, more mixed-use development. So, you know, when I travel and I go to places like New York and, and London where you have a lot more residential integrated into the city and it you know, it just, it changes the culture of the place, I think, for the better. Um, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I come into the Sydney CBD on a weekend and it's like a ghost town in mm, the CBD, right. you know, who wants to be around that? Nobody. <laughs> so I think you're going to see more mixed-use developments, and I know councils are, are starting to look at that with their requirements of, you know, repurposing old buildings for resi and things like that. But um, I don't see, you know, office buildings and CBDs going out of fashion. (laughs) I, um, you know, despite all of the technological advances and, you know, we certainly use things like video conferences and all of that far more than we ever used to. Mm -hmm. But I still think people place a lot of value on face-to-face interaction and meeting with people. and, Mm -hmm. And that's why I think... You'll, you'll never see, or at least not for the next 15 and 20 years, certainly, you won't see massive decentralization of offices. I, I just don't see that happening. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And so with the increasing population growth in Asia-Pacific region, where do you see the biggest impact to existing and future buildings in terms of infrastructure, high-rise towers increasing in height and the overall performance of buildings? Mm-hmm. I think Sydney and Melbourne are both forecast to have their population grow to something like 7 million in the next, you know, couple of decades. Wow. And if you think about, you know, the kinds of infrastructure that's going to need to support that population, I think um, public transport just has to be, you know, right at the top of the list, Um, you know, and, and, and obviously those transport hubs then see you know apartment developments around so like i think the infrastructure of public transport Mm -hmm. is going to to drive a lot of development but um you know sydney and melbourne in particular but but the same can be said for brisbane and other major cities um you know they will need to densify so i think we are going to see you know more medium to high-rise buildings going in I think they'll be mixed use, um, but they'll be focused a lot around public transport. Like, I uh, I get the train to Wynyard uh, every morning, and you know sometimes that platform is completely chockers, <laughs> and you you can't get onto it now. Yeah. So like, you know that needs to change <laughs> moving <Yeah>. forward. <laughs> I think uh, with um, you know the the light rail going in in Sydney, for example, is a really positive step. So I, I think you know. Um, more more of a focus on public transport is going to be where we need to focus initially. Okay, wonderful. Awesome. Do you think or do you consider building services and sustainability consultants will have an important role to play in all that then? And in what exactly can Sibsi be doing to be focused towards providing like a, a better legacy for future generations to come? Mm. Like I think the role of 
engineers is actually pretty profound. Mm -hmm. So people, you know, often talk about, you know, doctors hold lives in their hands and things like that. But, um, you know, engineers who design buildings and bridges, like, well, you actually have hundreds or thousands of lives in your hands when you're designing those things. So um, you have an incredibly important role to play in all of this. And I think... You know, the signals that we get from, from different organisations about, you know, what is your, what is your agenda? What, what kind of a target do you have for your organisation, for your industry? Uh, I spoke a little bit before about the momentum behind, you know, emissions reduction and things like that. Yeah. The, the property industry as a whole has committed to the idea of net zero emissions by 2050. I think the engineering industry should be coming out and saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you also need to walk the talk as well. Yeah. What kind of projects are you going to involve yourselves in? Is that consistent, you know, with those goals and, and yeah. that ethos? Um, so I, I think um, it'd be great to get that level of consensus and, you know, that sort of collegiate mentality from amongst, um, you know, the different engineering companies. I think. The more we can present a united front, the easier the policy discussion is going to is going to be. Uh-huh. Awesome. So it's pretty clear that the Property Council of Australia is working very closely with the Australian Building Codes Board to further improve and develop Section J of the National Construction Code. So you see this as a challenge to Property Council to um, you know to educate or change the attitudes of the constituents. Yeah, I am. Um I've taken this on as a little bit of a crusade, to be honest. <laughs> I, um, I, I just, I think it's so important and it'll be upon us before we know it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for those who are listening that maybe don't know, um, you know, what's going on, well, I guess there's, there's a pretty substantial overhaul of Section J underway at the moment. And, you know, a lot of people would say that's, that's pretty overdue. We've, uh, we've had Section J in for over 10 years, but um, in terms of stringency increases and in raising the bar, that hasn't really happened. So we've, you know, we've introduced that, and I'd say the stringency hasn't changed substantially in that period of time. So mm-hmm. we've got a really, you know, we've had a really stagnant kind of environment around that piece of regulation for a while now. Yeah. And so you've got us. I want to say not a stagnant supply chain, but um, if the whole market isn't isn't looking at higher performance, you know the leading players are certainly looking at using innovative building products and things like that. But uh-huh. you know, double glazing is still a lot more expensive than single glazing here because currently you can you can kind of get away with using single mm. glazing. Um, mm-hmm. So. In countries like Germany, single glazing is more expensive than double glazing because everyone uses that. So, so I went a little bit off track there, but um, (laughs) but I uh, I really you know I'm trying to get all all professions, um, you know, all all relevant industries across these changes Mm -hmm. and engaging with them on their merits. So I think you know property council supports um you know increasing minimum standards well what we need to be kind of conscious of is that this is a pretty dramatic shift from from having no change at all really in the last 10 years and so you know how is that going to impact on the cost of construction versus what are we going to save over the operation of the building we need to flesh those things out yeah 
And, and what I'm finding in you know, all of the conversations I have is that this particular set of changes, because it, it amounts to about a 40% stringency increase compared to business as usual, um, is, is bringing up really uncomfortable conversations that you know, we should be having, mm-hmm. but we don't like to have. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> because you know, we, we have liked to build um, you know, really beautiful um, buildings with a lot of glass on them. And so mm-hmm. you know, bringing architects to the same table as services engineers uh-huh. absolutely has to happen. Uh, I'm not convinced that happens as much as it should. Um, <laughs> Can we get away with, you know, with sort of continuing as we are? Um, I don't think so with these changes. So, you know, I'm, I'm out there working with our members, trying to raise awareness of what these changes mean for the industry. But I, I want to promote, you know, a really robust but constructive dialogue around it. I think nobody wants to see things go nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to progress. But it needs to be, in, you know, in a way that, that industry can prepare itself for. Yeah. Um, you know, and engage with positively. Awesome. So finally, um, so do you see any future barriers as we move towards this net zero carbon emissions? I got through this whole thing without getting political, really. (laughs) Um, There's, I guess there's the obvious elephant in the room. Um, You know, we've had some really positive engagement um, with the with the shadow minister for for energy and yeah. and climate change, Mark Butler um, of the Labour Party, and you know it's really positive to hear him say that you know he wants to be pragmatic and and meet somewhere in the middle and get to a bipartisan solution. But, but I, I do think um, you know there is a challenge in, in even getting um, a policy that the coalition um, as a whole can get behind. Mm-hmm. Um, in order for there to be a bipartisan solution. Uh, I, I think it's obvious that, you know, this, this can't continue to go on unresolved and the business community has made it really clear that that, that uh, doing nothing is not an option. Yeah. So I think that's a challenge, but I, I don't think uh, I don't think we can continue um, as we are. So I'm I'm hopeful. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Frankie. I'm Paul Angus, and thank you for listening. A big thank you to our first ever guest, Frankie Muscovich, Policy Manager, Sustainability and Regulatory Affairs at Property Council Australia, and of course, Sharon Pistonji, our resident funcaster. What a great speed round that was. In future podcasts, you'll be hearing from the CSIRO and the STEM project, which Frankie's kind of touched upon a little bit, about inspiring young primary and secondary students in engineering, as well as focusing upon women in engineering too. Steve Hennessy, international sustainability guru, will also be sharing his thoughts. Plus, we'll be joined by the, by the GECA, the Good Environmental Choice Australia, a purpose-driven, not-for-profit organisation that provides solutions for sustainable consumption and production. We'd also like to express our thanks to our industry sponsors, ARBS, who have made this all possible. The ARBS Expo is coming to Sydney in May 2018, so be sure to check out the largest air conditioning, refrigeration and building services exhibition in the Asia-Pacific Asia region. Our show is produced by Sheena Alexandra and Keith Hodgson at Bondi Radio. Please sub- subscribe to our broadcast on Apple Bod- Podcasts so you don't miss out or look us up at sibsi.org.au to sign up for our monthly e-news. Talking Buildings is a Sibsi Australia and New Zealand production. Join us for the next episode of Talking Buildings. Broadcasting from the world-famous Bondi Beach. Bondi Radio.